Hey, welcome back to the Restorative Grief Podcast. This is Mandy Capehart. I'm your host. And this week, we are talking about disenfranchised grief with my friend Megan Crozier. So disenfranchised or ambiguous grief is a very easily misunderstood pushed under the carpet kind of a topic. So naturally, I think it is very important for us to discuss. I'll define it a little bit more during the episode, but disenfranchised grief is basically any type of loss or emotional sense of grief that we are feeling that has been pushed aside, that maybe has been defined as not worthy of the time it takes to grieve. It can be so painful to live a life with this unacknowledged and dishonored grief in your story. So my friend Megan has a beautiful story about disenfranchised grief, what it takes to recognize it and how to reckon with it and wrestle healing from the broken pieces of your stories. Hey, Megan, welcome to the Restorative Grief Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Mandy. Absolutely. Thanks for joining me. I'm grateful that you're here making space to unpack some grief and hopefully think your way out loud through something that can help someone in our, in our audience too. So I was going to say, I'm super grateful for the space that you've created in this, in this area. So thank you. Oh, of course. This is not exactly the calling that I anticipated for myself, but it's one that has become more meaningful than I ever expected it to. You have the great big opportunity to talk about disenfranchisement and also known as ambiguous grief today. So before we get into that and your story, why don't you just tell everybody who's listening a little bit about who you are and we'll go from there. Yeah. So I am a writer and an educator, and I taught in elementary education for 15 years in Illinois, Washington, and Oregon, and most recently have um, transitioned to a community college, and I'm going to be a professor creating a teacher education program for future teachers. And also, um, I am on social media as the Pursuing Life, and I write and talk about faith deconstruction and things like purity culture and all kinds of other fun topics. And you, sometimes you and I are in Clubhouse together, which is also always a good time. I know that Clubhouse platform has become such a, a sacred space. It's like holy ground for people who don't feel like they've been heard to be invited up to the stage, so to speak, and share their stories in a way that maybe they've never shared them before. And I think you have been actually quite prolific in creating those spaces for people. So I bet you've encountered a lot of grief in those rooms, actually. It's yeah, it has been an amazing way to connect with people. And I know it's another social media. And so I think there's a little bit of resistance, but once you kind of learn how to navigate it and figure it out and realize how powerful it can be to have real-time conversations with people, it's, it's a really great place to connect. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one thing that we don't necessarily remember to value is those real-time conversations when it comes to online interaction. So that is a conversation we could go down a rabbit trail for 30 hours, probably about the value of that. So I'm going to bring us back around to just defining disenfranchised grief. So grief in and of itself, we know is not limited to death, but with the concept of disenfranchised grief comes from the idea that traditionally 
grief was believed to be connected to knowing someone that died, but not just any someone. It had to be someone that you were close to and not just close to, but intimately connected like a mom or a dad or your spouse, but not just intimately acquainted with them, but there needed to be some kind of trauma or unresolved issue so that you could have a reason to lament that they had left your life. Like you never got to resolve that crisis. Gosh, you must be grieving because if they were old or they were sick and you knew their loss was coming, it should have been no big deal because it's a natural thing, right? You've got this huge stigma associated with grief that just says, if you don't fit in exactly these right places, then I don't know why you're grieving or that word still comes. In. I don't know why you're still grieving. And so yeah. disenfranchised grief, as you know, is the idea that actually we get to recognize that grief is not only not limited to a death, but it can show up in so many different areas of our life that traditionally aren't even associated with death at all. Like a change in our relationship status, a decision that we made that ended poorly, an expectation that wasn't met. Um, and in your case, in a job change based on something you didn't necessarily want to change for. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you putting, putting us in the context because it's been really helpful for me to continue learning about disenfranchised grief and what that is. But really when I encountered it was last year during the pandemic. And I started the school year as a teacher and a lot, a lot of people know teaching was hard, but we did it. And we really, we rose to it. We learned all the online tools and I had a first grade classroom and we worked our tails off for those kiddos. And I stood in the front porch of families' houses, getting to know kids from a distance. I brought desks to students' houses and really connected with a group of 24 families. And when we decided to change our model and we really rapidly within three days went from being remote to being in person, I made the very difficult decision to say, I, I just did not feel safe yet. Um, teachers were not vaccinated. There was a huge community spread at that time. And so I requested a remote position. And as a result, I was switched to a different, I, I got the remote position, but I was switched from my first graders to a third and fourth grade split class. And it was very tough. And I, I didn't know that I was experiencing grief at the time, but I just knew that I was Zooming with my students in the mornings and just steeped in anxiety or depression in the afternoons. And I just didn't know what was happening. And so as I started to try to process what was going on and feeling like, did I bring this onto myself because I requested this remote position? I, I miss these families. I had no access to the families anymore. Um, our online system had changed. I couldn't, I couldn't communicate with them. I would try to reach out and answer some questions through the office. And there was a little bit of a stigma that I had stayed remote. And so there was just a lot happening. And it, it really was um, a lot of, I think a lot of people that connect with you, Mandy, overlap with Ryan Molkowski, but it really was a connection with him where he pointed out this, I think what you're dealing with is disenfranchised grief. And I think you have had a loss here. And I think recognizing that that loss of that first grade class and that group of students was um, with a first step in trying to navigate through, okay, what, 
what happened here and why is this happening and, and to start to kind of heal, but also handle working through the rest of the year and starting to realize everything that was going on. Maybe, maybe I had some career decisions to face. And so there was a lot happening there. And, um, and I, I think it speaks to also that, that disenfranchised grief, just even reaching out to talk about this and, and wanting to say, maybe, maybe this isn't grief, Mandy, maybe we shouldn't talk about this story <laughs> and, and you having to come back in and say, no, that's part of disenfranchised grief is trying to minimize your own story. And so I think it's been really helpful to connect with you on this too, and just mm. have it, have it be validated. Well, that is such a beautifully succinct wrap up of your, of your story and what you've been experiencing too, because the, the sudden loss of access to your students with whom you've been building this beautiful relationship and genuinely pouring all of yourself into it because you're expecting that this is foundational for the whole year. That had to be a, a significant impact on those kids too, for them to suddenly not have access to you in the way that they were expecting to and not knowing what to do with it on the other side. Cause these are six-year-olds. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of confusion during that time. Families made decisions about how they would, whether to go back to school or not based on what they thought, what teachers they thought they would have. And I think not knowing that I would be moved into a different position. There was just a lot of confusion. I honestly have not been able to connect with very many of those families, but I truly believe that there was a loss on their end too. Yeah, I will, I will say our daughter was doing online school. Our district did that year, last year as well. And we had a choice between online only for the year or online until in-person was possible. And we started with online only, and it was such a mess that I wanted the teachers at our school, they're friends of mine. I wanted them to be teaching my daughter, but we were in such disarray and confusion and just anxiety, not knowing you don't know what you don't know. And we were worried. So we ended up deciding to go back simply because of the teachers. I ran into one when I stopped in at the school and he looked at me and I burst into tears and I was like, okay, my daughter needs to come back here. But that just speaks to the fact that those relationships with teachers are so pivotal. And as parents, it can be very easy to discount the grief or the change or the shifts that teachers are experiencing as well. So because kids are our first priority, of course, Yeah. but for all of those parents, I'm sure there was a lot of frustration and just bitterness that could have easily taken root as well. So with that note, I want to ask you a question too. I know now you're doing something different, but during that year that you were teaching third and fourth graders, how did you navigate the relationship with your coworkers knowing I have this awareness that I'm grieving or I might be grieving, I'm not sure yet. Did that impact your work relationships at all? Yeah, absolutely. So I started the year, I was, I was actually slated to get my national board certification um, at the beginning of the year. And I had a really solid first grade team and we worked together very well. We had I, I did all the math for the entire grade level. Another teacher did all the literacy. We translated it into Spanish and English. We met a couple times a week and we were just, we were a really solid team. And um, we did some first grade, grade-wide events where we Zoomed in, um, we had a career day. We Zoomed in people from Chicago, from Colorado, from other places that it was like, we had this opportunity, people that were bilingual. And it, 
it was it was going so smoothly and I was very excited about things. And I think what happened was um, we the decision to open schools happened so quickly. We, the, it was decided on a Tuesday and we opened the following Monday and it was a Tuesday wow. evening. So we had Wednesday, Thursday, Friday to prepare and to make those really hard choices. And I, it was presented as you have the choice to stay remote or not. Um, and this is kind of where you can do. And I think had that been a choice where, okay, well, these teachers are staying remote, these teachers are going in and there was no stigma, we would have been fine. But what happened was it happened so quickly and everybody was thrown into disarray that those of us who stayed remote were blamed for the disarray. Um, and then those of us who went in, some of some people who went in didn't feel comfortable but didn't have the seniority to request remote positions. And, and some people were forced to go on leave. And so there was a lot of chaos in that time. And, and there were some massive staff emails that were sent out to, hey, we've been here all this time. Where have you been? Or why aren't you stepping up and coming in? And what? And, I, and there was not a lot of leadership. And, and I'm not even going to blame our, our school leadership because it was impossible to navigate. And there was no way to have a sense of leadership that would, that would cohesively bring everybody together on a topic that was so polarizing at the time in the midst of such chaos and confusion. So um, definitely after that decision to make, stay remote, I was very isolated from the rest of the staff. There were about four or five of us that stayed remote. And we connected occasionally, but it was a very isolating time where I just felt like I, did, I got to the point where I didn't even want to go into the building when I would run into staff because I never knew who I would run into or what would be said. Oh, I, can't, I can just feel like the awkwardness of having to go into the building and thinking about, oh God, am I going to run into... Kevin or Bill or Susan, or that just anticipatory grief, even of, I'm just trying to do the things I need to do for my students to get what they need for the year. And I actually have to engage this loss in order to do that. Not to mention, you said you were working for 15 years. I can assume a lot of those years were with these same peers. So there had to be some relational grief that you experienced as well as in the fallout. Yeah, I had um, a very good friend that that reached out and and said, why aren't you stepping out and stepping up and coming in? And that was a really, really difficult. We have been friends for a very long time and we're still kind of processing what happened there because I felt very, very hurt and and we've connected since and and she was going through a really difficult time. And I think one thing I've learned in all of this is we can't we can't pit our experiences against each other and we can't say who's, who's got it worse or who's struggling more because that's just lose, lose for everybody. And so I think I've learned to be able to find my own voice while also holding space and honoring the experience of, of somebody else who might feel very differently. Somebody else might, might say, I felt so much relief going back into the building and I honor that. And I, I'm not going to judge that person, but I think we just need to be able to hold space for each other's experience instead of pit them against each other. You're absolutely correct. It's so easy to lean on comparison or our own experiences to frame out the way we perceive someone else and how they're responding in a circumstance, especially when there's loss associated with it, or really disenfranchised grief is fueled by judgment. It's fueled by this discernment that someone applies to say, well, why are you grieving that she was sick, but you knew she was sick or 
you didn't like that relationship. It made you sad or you quit the job because you hated it. Well, I've quit jobs that I've hated and still had grief associated with it because of who I became. There are so many reasons why we would grieve a circumstance or something outside of death. Any breaking of relationship is loss. So that's really valuable that you're still working it out with that friend, but I can see easily why you would, it, it puts you on the defensive when they come at you, when someone comes to you with a question that feels like it's loaded with judgment on the front end as they ask it. I want to ask how this experience in, in teaching and just transition through COVID. I know that part has been, that's added an extra layer of grief over it all, but how has it impacted your transition into teaching at the college level now? Yeah. So, um, as soon as I was switched to the new grade level, I, I think by then I'd already made the decision not to pursue my national board certification, but Mm -hmm. I was having such a difficult time that it it made me really reevaluate the career as a whole. And that, that was very difficult that, that entire process, because it was, um, a lot of people very close to me in my life saying, but you're happy. You love this job. This is, this is the career that you've wanted your whole life. And me just feeling like I had to fight so hard to be seen and heard and to say, it's not just the pandemic. It's not just this year, but this year has made me reevaluate everything. And so just leaving that career behind um, had, was a huge struggle, but then finding and landing into this new opportunity, it it was the perfect fit, but it it took so long to get there because for a long time, I would look at job applications and think, you know, what am I going to do? And and I had no idea. So this, I've, I've found a home and I'm very excited about it. And I have a lot of passion and energy and renewed energy for just the field of education as a whole and Mm -hmm. for the impact that it can have and for making a difference in people's lives. But it took a long time to get there. It was a struggle. I kind of tell people, I feel like I died and came back to life again. Hmm. That's a big way to articulate, to apply like resurrection to this concept of, I was falling to pieces and dying in my old role for a thousand different reasons. And here I am revived. That's beautiful. Yeah, it has, it really has been a change. And um, I, you know, I'm in therapy now and I'll tell my therapist, I feel a little stressed that I'm not more stressed out right now. And it's, Mm. I mean, it it really does feel like a dream come true. And I mean, I'm pretty open about, I I took a $30,000 pay cut to make this change. And I don't regret that at all. I would, I would take the sacrifice in, um, you know, some family decisions or family budgeting and things like that any day over the experience that I had started to reflect on. How did you respond to people who pushed back on your decision by saying, but you're so happy. You love this. Why would you quit? How, how could you do that? I was not nice. I will will (laughs) say that. And what's interesting is the people that were doing that were the people closest to me, the people that were a little more distant from me, saw it and they saw how hard it was for teachers and they were like, Oh, I can absolutely can see why you would, why you would want to leave the career. But I will say my husband, my dad, my sister, people would call and they would say, um, how can you not be a teacher? Have you, have you really thought this through? Um, I 
dropped the F-bomb on a run with my dad one day and, and just lost it in, in tears because he brought it up casually while we were running. And I, I, I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle the discussion and I felt like I was unseen. And him and I have talked through that experience and he apologized for not seeing me more. And um, we've had a really reparative, restorative conversation about, mm. about that situation. And the same with my partner too. I think um, he did not realize the depth of what I was dealing with. And so I had to show him. And I think that's hard when you're, when you're going through grief and you're going through loss and you're going through trauma, it's hard to also show other people that are close to you how to walk you through that and what you need in order mm. to be seen. But once I was able to do that, he was able to help see me and give me what I needed. How did you fight to be heard? What were you beyond just coming unhinged during a run and deciding to cuss out your dad, which I am not opposed to. I think if it's effective, it's effective. (laughs) Um, But what, how did you navigate those conversations? What are some things that you remember that really helped the people closest to you see and hear you without trying to protect you from yourself, because that's what we're doing, right? When we question our closest people's decisions, we're worried about them and we love them and we want to see them happy and whole and not hurting, but we inadvertently wound them by questioning their judgment. Um, So how did you, what are some ways that helped you have those conversations without just breaking relationship or pulling away and deciding, Ooh, this isn't a safe person for me. Yeah. So I went to therapy and, and started working through some of that stuff. It was conversations over and over and over again. And it was also, I would say my husband saw me at my worst. He saw me crumpled on the floor in tears, unable to get up, Mm -hmm. unable to, to recover. And I think, and he, he saw times where, um, I told you there were a few other teachers that stayed remote. I had an experience where one of the other teachers sent me a card with a Starbucks gift card and, and just a little note. And it, it was a result of having seen staff emails over and over that said, we really appreciate how hard you're working and we're going to have breakfast for the staff or we're going to provide lunch today. And we weren't able to participate in that. And so a staff member that was also remote sent me a Starbucks gift card and said, this is for all the times that we can't have breakfast with the staff in the building. And I fell on the floor in tears because I felt so seen. And I think my husband saw that he was next to me when I opened the mail. And so for Mm. him to see, wow, this is really something that she's going through. And I, him reaching out and saying, I don't know how to help you help me figure that out. And so it was a lot of conversations and a lot of me understanding that he just didn't know and, and not blaming him for not knowing but giving him the guidance that he needed to help, help walk me through all of that. Those vulnerable expressions are things we don't realize that we need to share necessarily as grievers, because we get stuck in our, in our methods of trying to cope and trying to recover and, you know, swirling between survival mode and, okay, I feel functional today, but I don't want to touch my grief because it's a water balloon that's burst, ready to burst. And it's going to get on everyone and everything. And I don't have time for that. So we kind of tuck it away. And yet our people need us to advocate for ourselves. They need us to find ways to articulate what we need when we need it, or even just to say, I don't know what I need, but what I don't need is 
you questioning my judgment. What I don't need is all of my peers celebrating together and then being sad and sassy and saying, oh, if only you were here, it's too bad you couldn't join us. But that vulnerable expression is so much more powerful than we give it credit. I think I will say that I know that's how I am. I'm, I'm very open. I walk through it with conversation and not everybody's that way. And I think other people might shut down and, and shut off and cut off the people around them. And so I just, part of, part of the work that I had to do was continue to just show up for those conversations because, um, and that, that's how I handle conflict too, is I'm like, let's sit down, let's talk about it. Let's go through this. I'm always, I always say, say the thing, figure it out. So are you afraid in those conversations that you're going to say the wrong thing and make it worse? I think with my husband, no, we have a, we've been married 12 years and, and we, we get it, we get each other. And I, I feel very safe having those conversations. I think going into talking to my dad about that conversation was, was hard um, because I didn't know how he would react to me saying, Hey, when we had that conversation during that run, that was very hurtful for me. And I need to name that. And I, I just need to tell you that. And I, that was a huge risk because I knew that I needed to say it, but I also knew that deep down I needed him to acknowledge that. And, and he did. And I give him all the credit for that, for saying, I've thought about that conversation ever since. And I am so sorry that I did not respect your ability to really, really think through and process this as an adult, process the, the thought of having a career change. And, and he was very kind and apologetic. And I give him a lot of respect for doing that because I think that's hard for a father-daughter relationship. So seriously, as much as I love my dad, we occasionally have moments where I think, do you recognize what you just said and how it only applies to you and not me. And he's so loving. He will come back immediately and say something along the lines of, Oh honey, no, that's not what I meant. I'm so you're amazing. It's fine. You're going to do great. The idea that you've got people that you are close with that you have to be more curious with in your own grief is really complicated and can be limiting to our decisions to pursue wholeness and decisions to investigate. Yeah, this might be grief rather than just set it aside. I'm curious as you have stepped into this new role and you're feeling so empowered and just revived, how have you been, how has that been received by any coworkers that you're still in touch with from the previous role, whether or not you were they were the people that were cheering you on and saying, I get it. Or the people that maybe didn't understand and had a hard time with that. I guess a better question might be, are you in contact with them? And has that their relationship changed at all? Not, I'm not in contact with a lot of them. Um, some of those folks from that first grade team that I told you about, they, they stayed in touch and really championed this change. I do think people know I, you know, they were Facebook friends and, and all of that. But I think there's this sentiment that I brought this on myself, this unhappiness, mm. and I was bitter and unhappy and I needed to leave and good for her that she found something else. And so I don't think there's a sense of what really happened there, but I know that 
the school is doing well. The families are doing well. Um, there's families that I miss that I run into occasionally in the community mm-hmm. and I don't get into it, but, um, I, I think everybody is better off, but I don't, I don't think people have the depth of understanding of what I went to. I think they just think, oh, she needed a change. She was burnt out and she made a change. Your, you said something that is so prevalent when it comes to ambiguous and disenfranchised grief, this belief that I brought this on myself because maybe we're grieving the loss of a child through abortion. Maybe we're grieving a breakup that we initiated. Maybe we're grieving a job change. We might be grieving something that we had an active part in ending. I want to hear your perspective on how to address that for people, because I think what you do in your work in faith deconstruction community and having hosting conversations on clubhouse and on Twitter, and even on your blog, those there's so much grief in that arena that is untouched simply because I think we have this inner narrative that says, well, if I brought it on myself, do I have a right to grieve it? So how do you talk to people? How do you navigate those conversations and create space for them? Wow. That's a great question. Just to go back a little bit. I, I, so I had a leader in my life when I was navigating this career change and figuring out, should I just slip into a different role in my own school? I had a leader say, I think you just need to find your personal happiness. And I was really pissed. I was like, I, I, that's not it at all. Wow, that would make you, me really you know, angry. <laughs> yeah. And I, and it, but it really made me think about that concept of people just think I'm sad and, and mm-hmm. that I've done something here. And so I think that made me even more really try to find my own voice and try to figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a way to navigate that sense of these are feelings that I am inviting in to understand and to figure out and see how they are affecting me, but this does not define me. And this is not who I am. It's just part of me today and part of me right now. And I think when people start to see that and, and hold space for those feelings and not be afraid of them, which I, that's what I love about the work that you do is let's, let's talk about grief and lean into that, those feelings and not be afraid to have those difficult conversations. Then I think it's, it, it's less, I'm responsible for this and more, wow, this situation is causing a reaction for me. And I'm going to hold space for that reaction and allow myself to feel those feelings. It's so invitational that the work has to be invitational, like you said, and I, and yet not definitive. It can't be the overarching theme of our story. It has to be this, oh, I want to be observational of my life. I want to show up in it. I want to know that this is my story, but I can't begin to own my story, take ownership of my story and investigate what might be coming unless I can experience my story firsthand. And we tend, I think, especially in grief to want to, and, and often feel very removed, very like, I see stuff happening over there, but I feel completely detached from it. So yes, I think disenfranchised grief is one of those places where the detachment is almost acceptable because we want to just move on to the next thing. And the reality is grief is not something you move on from you move forward through it you expand around it, but 
if you never acknowledge that there's grief, it's going to keep coming around. And instead of gaining something from it, or even learning who you were and what you were grieving and why, and inside disenfranchised grief experiences, you just miss out on that richness of being human, because this is something we all encounter almost on a daily basis. And yet we have this idea that we can simply just weave our way around it by making all the right choices and never making hard decisions or. Okay. So before we wrap this up, I want to invite you to, again, tell our audience how they can find you on social media. I am under the pursuing life. Twitter is kind of my jam these days. So the pursuing life, I have a Facebook group that is mildly active and Instagram and clubhouse and clubhouse is always a good time. So even if somebody's never tried it before, I always tell them to check it out. And then I have a blog at thepursuinglife.com. So any of those places, and I'm always super available if folks want to reach out and have any questions or want to talk about faith deconstruction or any of this stuff too. (laughs) I have one last question for you, which is probably going to catch you off guard. So sorry in advance. What, if anything, would you recommend for someone as a resource if they are hearing this episode and thinking, oh my gosh, I actually might have some grief that I've never acknowledged or that I didn't recognize before. Um, What is a resource besides, uh, you know, jumping on and talking to us that you might refer someone to? Wow. So I would say that a huge help in helping me process this was really talking through it with you and Ryan and other people, but I think in therapy. So I did not specifically seek out books to read about grief. Um, Mm. I just processed it with, with a therapist and with the people around me. So I don't know if I have a great answer for that, but that is a great answer though, because those are all, yes. I think vulnerable expression and just reckoning with what is actually happening is your answer. And I think that's phenomenal. So Megan, I adore you. And I'm so grateful we got to have this conversation and just thank you for giving us your time today. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for listening to episode eight of restorative grief with Mandy K part. Reckoning with our grief in a way that brings permission to this process is necessary, but as you have heard from Megan's own story, it can be very easy to dismiss our right and our need to grieve. Disenfranchised or ambiguous grief affects everyone differently, and although we don't want you to scour your life story for grief that you may have overlooked, It is worth becoming aware of this concept so that in the future, you can embrace your need to grieve with compassion and grace for your journey. As usual, I want to end our conversation today with a quote from Pauline Boss. She has written quite a few different books on the topic of ambiguous grief, and this quick summary of her work gives us that permission we need to ask questions of the uncertainty and to embrace that which we cannot resolve. She writes, ambiguous loss makes us feel incompetent. It erodes our sense of mastery and destroys our belief in the world as a fair, orderly, and manageable place. But if we learn to cope with uncertainty, we must realize that there are differing views of the world. 
even when that world is less challenged by ambiguity. If we are to turn the corner and cope with our uncertain losses, we must first temper our hunger for mastery. This is the paradox. Before you go, take a moment to pause. This work is no joke, and it's not for the faint of heart, but there is truly no single way to unwrap your grief or find healing. By listening and engaging the idea of ambiguous or disenfranchised grief, you are agreeing that your heart is worth the trouble it might encounter and the ongoing work of finding new ways to heal. Memories once set aside might bubble back to the surface. Your present circumstances may seem a little more complicated than you thought, or perhaps even appear more clearly than before. But regardless of what this conversation has stirred in your life, remember this. You are a whole person experiencing life and grief as two sides of the same coin, and you deserve to experience both sides to the fullest without interference. So grieve as you live, wildly, with hopeful anticipation for what's to come and gratitude for what was and what is. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.